Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Ken F. was recorded on April 28, 2022. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm Ken, grateful recovering adult child, and I am here tonight to share my experience, strength, and hope with all of you. Um, not a lot of blood and guts in my story, but there is a lot of pain, and I am happy to say I'm not that hurting person anymore today. Um, I feel tonight like I'm honoring the hurt child that I have inside of me. He is still with me and he's here today. And um, I'm also celebrating the man that I am today from, from my journey. So welcome to my journey with me. Uh, I'd like to think of my story as basically going from a place where I kept asking um, the universe, asking God, just, just ruminating in my head the words, why me? Um, something that I just was struggling with every day as a child, just why am I in this family? Why do I have these parents? Why do I have this body? Why do I have these situations? And uh, was something that ruminated in my head for many, many years. Uh, I did a lot of healing prior to coming into ACA, but ACA certainly has had a very positive impact on my life today. Uh, in telling my story, let me introduce you to my family of origin so that you can see and hear the intergenerational pain that was put in my lap. Um, there are a lot of holes in my parents' story, but I can kind of read between the lines and uh, see the pain that they uh, carried into my life uh, without me knowing it. Uh, my dad's family, my dad's family had been in this country since almost the beginning. Uh, I think they came in shortly after the Mayflower and founded a town um, in Connecticut, Weathersfield, Connecticut. And my dad was really big on genealogy, chased everything back to the, traced everything back to uh, Sons of the American Revolution. And he was born in South Dakota and somewhere along the lines moved into Los Angeles. And don't really know much about his upbringing because my dad really didn't talk about much. Even at the end when uh, he was old and on his deathbed and I was really trying to get to know really who he was and what he was all about. Um, he really refused to go anywhere deep. Um, I know looking at pictures of him with his parents, his father never smiled. Um, so I never, I never met my grandparents on my father's side. They were both deceased when I came around. Uh, my father had a sister who was about a year younger than him and then had another sister come, come around like seven years later. Uh, Dad was born in uh, 1926, 
And in the 30s, his father was head of Los Angeles juvenile probation. Uh, so I guess his father had a pretty decent job. However, we didn't have health care back then like we do today. And he was diagnosed with some type of kidney problem and didn't exactly know what it was. Or the doctors didn't exactly tell him what it was, but he basically had to come home uh, where they didn't have any treatment for his situation. And he ended up dying in the home. Uh, my father, being the man of the family, had to drop out of school about ninth grade and he had to support the family. And I know that he had a lot of resentments about that because that was one of the things that I inherited and heard about growing up a lot. Um, he also didn't have a bedroom growing up. He had to sleep on the couch or had to sleep in the dining room, that his sisters were the ones that got special treatment and that uh, he never had anything of his own. And then, like I said, had to drop out of school at an early age. And I'd hear stories about him selling newspapers for a penny just to try to make ends meet around the house and, and keep everyone afloat. And I do think a part of the rift I had between my father and our relationship was his resentments towards me. Uh, he, I think, tried really hard to put a roof over my head and to give me a bedroom that he never had. But I think he always resented that I had that and he never had that. Um, something that I'll go into a little bit more later on with. Um, my mother's family was a little interesting. I think in her family, the women were a little bit more uh, behind the driver's seat than in my dad's family. My mother's parents uh, had an interesting story. Her father was from France and her mother was from Russia. And he went traveling uh, late 18th, century, late 1800s, went traveling, and he met my great-grandmother in Russia, and they were Jewish, and he was a clothing designer, and somehow they ended up in New York City, where they had four kids, and 12 years after having four kids, the marriage wasn't doing very well, but there came along my grandmother 12 years later. So my, my grandmother has a different slant in the story. Um, she wasn't raised with the Jewish background, but um, it was certainly a part of the culture. And when she married my grandfather uh, around the 1920s uh, during the depression, my grandmother always was a person who had a hell of a lot of spirit. Uh, she loved a lot of attention. Uh, some people might even say that she was narcissistic. Uh, she just was very gregarious and happy most of the time and very resilient. And I think part of that was growing up the way that she was brought up uh, with her parents divorcing early. Her youngest sister, who was 12 years older than her, was very overbearing over her. And as an adult, she told me the story about how she had an abortion when, uh, when she had just gotten married. And this was back in the 1920s. And the story that she told me without any uh, pain in her face was that uh, her sister who's overbearing said, you know, this isn't the time, it's the depression. You just got married, your husband's just starting out. I think that you can have children later on. You really need to, um, to, to, to think about this and have this. And then my grandmother went on to say, but I think the real reason she had me have an abortion is because her brother-in-law was an abortion doctor. Because if he was a dentist, I probably would have just had my teeth cleaned. 
So that was kind of the attitude that my grandmother had. Um, mother, my mother, who was her best friend, was just the opposite. If my mother knew that I was telling the story right now, uh, she might stop speaking to me because that was part of the, the family secret and taboo. Um, my grandmother did go on to have uh, a son, my uncle, and six years later, my mother. And shortly after that, my aunt. And my aunt was not planned. And my aunt always held resentments against that. So moving into my parents, uh, my, my mother, uh, when she was 15, my grandfather had a heart attack. He woke up in the middle of the night coughing. and He died in my grandmother's arms. And I think because of my mother being my, my grandfather's favorite, uh, needed to replace him somehow. So she was married when she was 17 years old. Uh, the marriage lasted for six years. And uh, shortly after having my sister, they, they divorced. So here's my mother in the early 1960s, a single parent uh, on her own. And she met my father, who was about 32 years old. And uh, they ended up getting together. Uh, I never saw my parents affectionate towards each other. I never saw my parents say, I love you to each other. Uh, I think maybe once or twice I've seen them give each other a hug. Um, I think looking back that it was just, my dad was at a place in his life where he felt this was his last chance to get married. And my mother needed somebody to, to help her and make her feel stable and wanted. And they got together. And uh, I came along two years later and grew up with my sister, who was my half-sister, but growing up, she was in the house, and her father was out of the picture, and uh, there were no pictures of him in the house. Uh, I knew from day one that she was my half-sister, but there was more secrets about that. We do not talk about her father. Uh, we never bring up his name. Uh, there shall be no pictures. Um, he just did not exist, and uh, my sister was four years older than me, and she had the role of the hero. She was the type of person that would never have to crack open a book, yet would get straight A's and succeeded everything she did, where I struggled a lot uh, more than, uh, than most. Uh, my dad was 36 years old when I was born, which I think was too old. Uh, he was a very old 36 and very set in his ways. Um, and I ended up being the youngest kid in the family. So when it comes to cousins and brothers and sisters, I was the last one to come out. So um, don't really know what it's like to have baby brothers or sisters or little kids running around or cousins or anything like that, because uh, I was the end of the line. And that actually kind of worked against me because uh, I mentioned my aunt. My aunt was, was bitter. My aunt uh, did not like that she... Uh, always felt that she was unwanted and just kind of wanted the whole world to know how, how unhappy she was. And she really had expectations on me to be like my sister and my cousins, and they were all older than me, and I could never keep up with them. So I always, always was behind. I always was, was uh, just last one in the, in the game. Uh, they're in high school. I'm still in elementary school. They're learning French. They're traveling. And, you know, I'm still still at home. Uh, my father was very overprotective and my mother tells the story about how she actually wanted to have 
another kid, but she said that my father just stressed her out too much by how overprotective he was over me. And I think that was the beginning of the control that I started having loom over me in my life as I was, as I was growing up. Uh, so my mother was stressed and my mother also tells me the story about how I wouldn't stay still in my crib. So in order to keep me from crawling to the front of the crib or crawling to the back of the crib, whichever way it was, I can't remember, but she tells a story about how she had to use safety pins to keep me in place. And, you know, looking back on that, it's like, there's another check of, you know, me having other people exert their control over me and me losing my, my will. Uh, my sister knew about her father. And even though she was the hero and my dad treated her as if he was her own, uh, she was very bitter and she was very bitter towards me. And she did a lot of manipulation. Um, and I guess you'd call it today gaslighting with me as a, as a child to, to basically show me that my parents loved her more than they loved me. So my world just kept getting, I think, smaller and smaller. Uh, the older that I got, um, I wasn't allowed to get my play clothes dirty. Um, parents didn't like me going out to play because they were afraid I was going to hurt myself. Uh, we moved to the suburbs. I grew up in Los Angeles. We moved to the suburbs of Orange County when I was about three years old. And I would live in that neighborhood until I was 25 years old. And the neighborhood was, uh, was a, a housing tract. And we were the first owners of the house that moved in. And a lot of the people that I went to elementary school were people that lived in the neighborhood. So in that respect, I had a very stable childhood. We didn't move around much after that one. We didn't move around at all, I should say, after that one move. And um, I did enjoy that stability. However, my father was working in aerospace and talked a lot about getting laid off. And even though he never did get laid off, there was always the worry that he would come home with a pink slip, whatever that meant, uh, a pink slip. And that that would mean that we might have to lose the house and our life changed. So we always had that kind of over hanging over our heads. Um, being that young and not having a lot of other kids around, not really being able to to go around uh, the neighborhood and hang out with other kids much. I didn't socialize much. So when I was around other kids, I was very, very awkward. I was very insecure. Uh, I was very skinny as a child. And, you know, I always thought that I just, for whatever reason, just couldn't grow like other kids. And when I would see people who I hadn't seen in a while, neighbors, whoever, they'd always make comments like, don't you ever eat anything? And Looking back now, I remember times where my mother would be in the kitchen. She was a stay-at-home mother. She'd be in the kitchen cooking dinner, and I would be starving. I would have such hunger pains, and I would go in, and I'd be begging for a snack, and she'd give me like a matzah or a carrot stick and tell me she didn't want to spoil my appetite. And I just remember being so, so hungry and never really feeling nourished. Um, so I wasn't getting nourishment at home and I wasn't getting nourishment um, when I went to school. Um, I was uncoordinated. I was anxious. I was 
hyperactive. I, I had allergies. Uh, I was known as the kid that always had the snot rags in my pocket because my nose was always running. I think my nose didn't stop running until I was probably outside of college. Um, just if I wasn't getting over a sinus infection, I was coming down with one. It seemed like I had two good months or two good weeks out of a month and two bad weeks. And that was just pretty much how my life was. And I missed a lot of school because of that. Um, didn't feel very athletic, uh, not that I was allowed to get outside and exercise anyway. So that might've kind of contributed to that. Uh, feeling awkward and isolated in the home, I kind of withdrew inward and music was my escape. And in the beginning, I had a rocking horse that I used to um, sit on and rock with. And I came home from school one day, I think I was in kindergarten and the rocking horse was gone. And I asked my mother where it was. And she said, uh, you, you've outgrown it. You're too big for it now. So, so we got rid of it. And that was the first of many toys that I would come home that would be gone because my mother had decided that I had outgrown them and I was too big for it. So things being taken away from me before I was ready to let go of them. But I graduated from the rocking horse to a small rocking chair. And then when I got bigger into a bigger rocking chair, and I think all the way through high school and even to college, uh, I would spend probably an hour every morning just sitting in the rocking chair, listening to records with my headphones on, just zoning out. And uh, that was my world. That was kind of the world inside of myself that I, I created. Um, going to elementary school, I would, uh, I would make some friends with, with other kids in the school. Uh, I never seemed to fit in with a group though. It seemed like most of my friends were just one-on-one -on -one, and I would hang out with friends because we liked the same thing. We liked Hot Wheels or we liked building tree houses or we liked something, but it seemed like the friendships never lasted. People would get bored with Hot Wheels. People would get bored with, um, you know, playing with local bullfrogs and stuff and people would move on to other things. Uh, I felt awkward in school because of the control. My parents used to comb my hair every morning and put the stuff in my hair called trainee, which was like glue. So my hair had to look a certain way and they expected my hair to look that way when I came home. Uh, my mother would dress me. Uh, my mother to save money would go to the store and buy patterns and material and she would make clothes for me, which were very awkward looking. Um, those would have been kind of interesting pictures maybe to share. I was also told that I was flat-footed, so my parents would go out and they'd buy special orthotic shoes for me, which were very awkward, and where everybody else was getting tennis shoes and stuff, I was not. And I think this was kind of the age, too, where brands were starting to come in, things like Nike and Adidas, and my parents would never buy me that. They're like, why would we pay that uh, the money for that? We can get the same thing without the logo on there. So I've always wondered if anybody has ever done a study on if generic brands lower people's self-esteem, because I know growing up, they sure lowered mine. Everybody else had the cool stuff and uh, not me. I was the kid with the clunky, clunky shoes. And of course, certain age, I had to get glasses. So I got clunky glasses and then I got clunky braces and um, just everything um, about me just, just, just seemed wrong. And inside of myself, I knew that there was, you know, hopes and dreams. And I think my saving grace where other kids have a, uh, 
imaginary friend. My imaginary friend, believe it or not, was my adult self coming back from the future to tell me that everything would be okay. And that is what I needed at different points in my life when I felt at my lowest is to know that, um, that I would be okay. There wasn't a lot of religion in my family. Um, my mother, like I said, she was culturally Jewish. I really didn't know what that meant. Uh, later on in life, uh, as an adult, I would be working with people that would speak Yiddish and surprisingly, I understood a lot what they meant. Uh, but my mother even would say that she grew up with a Christmas tree. So not really a lot of religion in my family. I think my parents maybe took me to church uh, twice. The religion in my family was a god by the name of Emily Post. And Emily Post is kind of Miss Manners. And I guess she wrote a book about the right way to set a table, the right way to fold a napkin, the right way to um, you know, hang the toilet paper. That was a big argument sometimes between my parents was which way the toilet paper would hang. And um, actually grew up thinking that people that had toilet lids that were up in their houses were, were savages. So I would always, when I would go to a person's house, the first thing that I always do, would I would go in their bathrooms and put their toilet lids down because that was what Emily Post said was the right thing to do. So that was kind of my construct of religion growing up. Uh, I remember walking to school with my sister one day and she asked me if I believed in God. And I said, I don't know what is God. And she said, God is the belief of something supreme, supreme that created everything and is in everything. And I remember just thinking, I don't know, that sounds good. So that was kind of my, my religion growing up. Uh, a lot of pain. I, I didn't like going to school. Uh, I was held back in the first grade. And I think that was also another form of control that I had lost. That was something that devastated me. Uh, what friends I did have were all moving on into the grade and I was behind. And I was with kids that were a year younger than me and did not know how to act and tried super, super hard to fit in with them, not knowing to just be myself. And I created a lot more problems for myself than I thought were worth. Um, watching a TV show one day, I heard somebody talking about the, the drawings that kids draw. And if, if a kid draws a frown, then that means that they're unhappy and to be aware of that. And I remember hearing that and not wanting anybody to know how sad I was. So I made sure that every time I drew a picture, I would have a big, big smile on there because I did not want anyone to know the pain that I had. Um, not a lot of nurturing from my parents. Like I said, uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom and, and she used to bake, but, you know, baking cookies and stuff, we were limited to how many we could have. We couldn't sample the dough. Uh, we're lucky if we could lick the beaters. Um, my father really didn't have any involvement except to maybe take over. Uh, my parents did have me in scouts for a year and there was a contest where dads and kids were supposed to make kites. And I remember my dad just basically saying, you know, I'm going to do this for you. So I'm going to give you a really good kite. But he did it. I didn't do it. I had no involvement in that. Uh, fishing was like that. If we'd go to Big Bear, I would sit in the boat and hold the fishing reel while he would do everything else. So kind of ruined the art of uh, or the sport of fishing for me with, with that one. Um, parents taught me to be afraid of everything. 
Uh, my mother certainly not being afraid of heights. My father taught me to be afraid of authority and to not speak out and to trust no one. So I pretty much grew up in, in a lot of fear and my dad would tell me bedtime stories and the stories he would tell would be uh, not fairy tales, but stories like the Lindbergh kidnapping where somebody crawled through a window and stole a kid and the kid was killed and found dead a month later. So as a child, after my parents would put me to bed, I would hear the wind blowing outside the window and get extremely frightened and you know, go downstairs to seek support and some nurturing. And I was told that it was my imagination and to just go up there and face my fears which I was just certain after hearing my dad's stories that somebody was going to come through the window and kidnap me and kill me. So I grew up with all this. Uh, my dad told me to be afraid of uh, power tools. Uh, you know, you'd lose an eye, you get your finger chopped off. So I basically learned no valuable skills from my dad as far as building things and fixing things, which is a shame because my dad could build and fix anything. Um, and I got a lot, a lot of um, beat up and bullied in school too, because I was so awkward. I was the kid that had the kick me sign on my back. And um, the most violence at the t uh, happened at the dinner table. So the dinner table was the time where we were all together. And usually the time when my dad had had a couple martinis in him and usually somebody would say the wrong thing. And usually it was me. And my dad would get mad and he'd slam his hand against the table and the silverware would go flying in the air. And I really learned to cower with the threat of violence. My dad didn't get violent too often, but there was always the threat of that. And my sister, um, she felt the stress too and couldn't eat at that point and developed anorexia. She would uh, just not eat and because I was so skinny and I was starving for food, it kind of worked to my benefit because I could eat everything off of her plate that she didn't want. So that was me trying to get some type of control over, over my situation. When it came time for me to move on to junior high school, I lived in fear. I was told that as soon as I went to junior high school that people would grab me and throw me in a trash can. And I begged my parents to let me go to a different junior high school. I really wanted to start over from scratch. I wanted to go from being Kenny to being Ken. I wanted to have a different identity. I did not want to be the kid with the kick me sign or the one to be thrown in a trash can. And I was very fortunate here that my parents did listen and change the schools. Uh, the condition was that I had to ride my bike to school every day and not rely on them. It was a mile and a half away. And I promised them, I said, I will ride my bike every day. Just please, please do not let me go to another school. And it was a good start for me. I think it was a really good beginning. It was a positive moment. Uh, unfortunately, at that school, there were still bullies. And uh, my, my first year was very painful and got beat up a lot until finally my dad gave me the permission to break a kid's nose. He says, if you do that, I will, I will, I will stand up for you. Um, before that, I had no strength. And in elementary school one time, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember I did get called into the principal's office. And I sat there and as the principal was talking to me, 
I could not stop crying. I had so much anxiety. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't speak when he talked to me. Um, that was the scared kid that, that I was. And that was the person who I thought I was leaving behind when I, when I went to the junior high school. And I think I did mature a lot at that, that, that point. I think I did get some strength. Um, I had some good relationships with some of the teachers and I felt almost like I was connecting more with them more on an adult level. I started going to an adult education class on creative writing because I really wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer, an actor, and a photographer. Those were my dreams. And I started going to an adult education class where I was the only kid in the class. Everybody else in the class was an adult. Uh, they were either college students or they were in their 40s. Uh, the woman that ran the class was probably in her 50s. And uh, I remember one of the people in the class, he was writing soft porn. So it was really kind of interesting that I was working on trying to write a manuscript uh, about a group of kids that are stuck in an amusement park during an earthquake when other people are writing all this adult stuff. But I was starting to gravitate more towards hanging out with adults and finding safety with them. I uh, also started doing community theater where I was hanging out with more adults and I was getting respect from them, which really made a difference for me. I was getting respect from them where I wasn't from, from people my age and I wasn't from my family and, and my parents. I also did start going to church. Uh, a neighborhood friend of mine uh, was going to a local church and this church had a thing where if you could bring in a whole bunch of kids, the person that brought the most kids, we get a free trip to Disneyland. So we will bribe people to bring in more people. And I wanted to help this girl out because I liked her a lot. So I went to church with her to help her. And I kind of liked what I heard there. So I ended up uh, staying at the church. And when I was in I think the summer between eighth and ninth grade, the college and high school group was having a bike ride where they were going up to um, Santa Barbara up the coast and taking a five day bicycle ride down the coast. And I really wanted to do that. That I always wanted to go camping. My parents would never take me camping. My parents would never take me to Disneyland. You know, I really wanted this out any chance I could get. And I did have some teachers and some friends in elementary school that took me camping and I knew I loved it. So I begged to go and they didn't want me to go because I wasn't, I wasn't obviously the size of a high school college kid. They looked and saw this little scrawny kid and said, you're not gonna be able to bike 50 to 70 miles a day. And I'm like, I can, I can, I can, please let me, please let me prove myself. And I did, I did the trip. And it was amazing. I fell in love with cycle touring and all through high school, that was the one thing on my mind that I wanted to get out of the house and do. My, my bike was my, my saving grace. In high school, I didn't feel comfortable with my peers. I got a part-time job working at Schnitzel, which ended up being a full-time job. Uh, I was involved in theater. I was involved in so much stuff, but I never had time for anything. And I remember one night I was in, uh, in school on a play. And as I was watching everybody get ready for the play, they were talking about how the theater group was going to Disneyland and how they were interacting together. And I felt so isolated and alone because I was not a part of that group. I was working, I was busy. And I kind of had a nervous breakdown backstage that night. Uh, I couldn't stop crying. Uh, all the other kids were trying to comfort me. 
Um, I would get on stage, put that mask on because we know how to put a mask on, um, but I was falling apart afterwards. The next day, I rode my bike to a testing site and I took a test that allowed me to graduate high school a year early. So I felt empowered that day. I passed the test and I was able to finally catch up for the year that I lost by being held back a grade. Uh, my dad, unfortunately, had my grandfather's kidney disease. And when I was in fifth grade, he came home and went on dialysis. And a few years later, had a kidney transplant. Uh, which was great for him, but for me, he was in the house all the time and he became a hypochondriac and I was not allowed to have friends over because if anybody came over and sneezed, he could die. And he continued to drink because the kidney was holding and the doctor said to him, Don, whatever you're doing is working, keep it up. And my mother didn't like that. So my mother got a job working at Kmart so she could get out of the house and kind of would leave me alone with my dad when, when he would be drunk. Um, my sister at that point was already out of the house. We did kind of have another kid in the house, which was uh, our Basset Hound. And that became my dad's companion. And my dad uh, would say things to me like, I don't understand how, um, how I deserve such a, a bastard son like you because um, I should have just had basset hounds. So I kind of knew my dad was cracked, you know, at a young age, I knew there wasn't something right about my dad. Uh, and the dog one time when my dad went to hit me, the dog actually uh, jumped and snapped at my dad. So I did kind of feel empowered that the, the family hero, which was the dog actually stood up for me. At, uh, at, at one point before my dad had his transplant, he went to strike me and I blocked his strike and he hit his hand against me where his um, uh, dialysis machine was getting hooked up. So of course he went into dialysis the next day and told everybody that I had smashed his veins because I had attacked him. So my dad always was the person to blame. If anybody grew up watching All in the Family, my parents were Edith and Archie Bunker. My dad had to blame everybody and everything for everything. Um, wanted to be an actor. My dreams started fading in college. Uh, like I said, I started gravitating. My self-esteem started getting a little bit better when I went to college and got out of high school. But my real saving grace was my bicycle. And I had three people ask me in 1985 to ride my bicycle across the country with them. And the third person to ask me, I just said, what the heck, let's, let's do this. So I think that June 6, 1985 is my Independence Day. This is the day that I packed my bicycle with my tent and my sleeping bag. I uh, got different companies to sponsor me with tents and sleeping bags and gloves. And I was able to get a leave of absence at work and take time off of school. And even though my parents forbid it, you know, you're 22 years old and we're forbidding you to do this. I just said, you know what, I'm doing this. And it was probably the best decision I ever made in my life. And I had two friends that started out with me and uh, for various reasons, they each dropped out at, at different points of the trip. Uh, but I was very desolate at one 
point. Uh, each time my friends dropped out, I felt total abandonment. Uh, I would go into a big depression, even though I knew it had nothing to do with me. They had their own demons that they were battling with. It had nothing to do with me, but just such a, a raw wound. And I kept asking myself, why me again? Why do I have to like a sport that is just so odd that nobody can continue doing this with me? And one night I was at a church service at Yellowstone National Park, and I stood up and I asked uh, if anybody could pray for my friend who was still with me at the time and really doubting if he wanted to finish the trip. And at the end of the service, an elderly man in a business suit came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, I believe in young people and I believe in you. And I wanna give you $20 to have lunch on me tomorrow. I didn't grow up in a family where people believed in me like that. And here a stranger is coming up to me and believing in me. And I had a deal where anybody that helped me out on the trip, I would get their address and I would send them a postcard to let them know at the end that I got to Boston safely. And he said, no, that's not necessary. I believe in you and I believe in young people and, and have lunch on me tomorrow. I don't think that man knows how much he changed my life. I had the courage to, com to complete the trip. My friend lived in Chicago, the second one to drop out, and he dropped out when he got home, and I continued on my own. And I didn't call home very often because every time I called home, my parents said the same thing. Are you done yet? I didn't want to hear that. So I kept writing. And even though I didn't go as far as I had hoped, I'd hoped to go to Nova Scotia. The weather was starting to get kind of cold and I felt that, you know, maybe it's time to head home. So I shortened the trip a couple of weeks. I was gone three and a half months. I decided I was gonna do the trip again the next year. And I did, I did a second trip. And I realized along the way that I really wanted to help people and not necessarily be an actor, but do something more realistic. So I went to college to get a degree in human services. And I had met a lot of amazing people on my trip that I kept in contact with. And part of my internship in school was to be a, a counselor at my old high school, which just felt so uncomfortable. I could not eat in the lounge with uh, the teachers. It was just such an awkward thing. But on the other hand, all the kids loved me and I was the cool person to hang out with for lunchtime, something I didn't get when I was in high school. But it wasn't very good as a therapist. So after a year, I asked to change schools and I went into a new school where I went in as an adult and I went into the teacher's lounge one day and I uh, got some food and the table that was right in back of the service counter had a very spirited group of teachers. And I walked over to them with my tray and I said, may I join you? And one of the teachers looked at me and said, that depends. This is the A table. Only people who are somebody may sit here. Are you somebody? And I said, I was somebody this morning and I believe I'm still somebody now. And she pulled out a chair and said, and then you may join us. So I worked at the school for six years and I sat at the A table for eight years. And remained friends with a lot of those people for years afterwards. So a lot of good growth. My sister did have me uh, go to an ACA meeting in 1988 because she said, you know, you're in denial. Dad's an alcoholic. I'm like, he's not an alcoholic. He doesn't live on Skid Row. He doesn't drink out of a paper bag. He just drinks. 
But I went to the ACA meeting with a friend of mine where we saw a lot of people sitting around in rooms, hugging teddy bears. And instead of sharing, they would just cry. And it just seemed really crazy and no recovery and scary. And my friend and I ran out never to go back. In 1994, I graduated with my master's degree in counseling. And I rode my bicycle cross country a third time. And I stayed with all the people that I had met on my earlier trips. And by coming back, I became family. And I have a family in Virginia and three Pennsylvania Dutch families in Pennsylvania that have adopted me into their family. And I learned from them what it's like to have a sense of community, what it's like to nurture each other, what it's like to be in a family system that works on collaboration versus competition. And I go back every year and visit them because they are my family of choice. Now, a few years ago, I, I, I heard a lot of good stuff about ACA and I, as a therapist, referred a lot of people to ACA. And one of my patients came back to me and said, there's a, a convention going on and I would like you to speak at the convention. And I thought, that sounds like something I would like to do. And I would like to go to ACA first, just to kind of know who I'm talking to. So I walked into a meeting about eight years ago. And even though I went just to kind of get my feel for it, I noticed after a month that my life was starting to change. Even though I felt like I was doing pretty good at the time and had gone through a lot of healing on my own, I was not noticing other changes. Um, I got a sponsor, I started going regularly, I worked the steps, and guess what? My life got a lot better. And today I, I give back to the, the fellowship. Uh, I, I'm of service, I'm a sponsor. Uh, I do speaking like this. Uh, two years ago when we went on lockdown at work because of COVID and I wasn't able to do educational groups, I started doing recovery videos and putting those on YouTube. So that's kind of my way of giving back and keeping myself a part of things. Uh, never thought I would go to a high school reunion because that was just such a scary, horrible time in my life. And through Facebook, I've reconnected with some people from my, my neighborhood. In fact, one of the girls whose family took me camping for the first time. And I have to say, I went back to a high school reunion and it wasn't painful. It wasn't little Kenny going back. It was Ken, the adult going back, talking with other adults. And it's amazing now how many of those people are still a part of my life today and are some of my best friends that we now are at a different level. We, we, we talk as adults, uh, we share the pain. One of my, my good friends uh, in fourth grade, you know, mom, who was the perfect mom, who was at all the bake sales, um, we were all shocked in fourth grade when we heard that she jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. So as an adult, you look back and you realize that everybody was suffering with, with a lot of pain. Everybody, you know, had their own cross to bear. And as adults, we can come together and celebrate who we are today and, and how much we've grown. Uh, I created my own sense of community after learning this from the Pennsylvania Dutch. I made my house the center of the neighborhood. I became the house that had all the barbecues to invite everybody over. I created movie night groups and kayaking groups and just becoming the person that I wanted to be and let that little kid inside of me grow. Um, today I can manage my depression, I can manage my anxiety. 
I've certainly managed my loneliness. I love being alone. Um, I'm surrounded by so many people that I have the option of choosing when I want to be alone and when I want to be lonely. I have a great uh, circle of friends. And my spirituality has been a big part of the journey. I didn't talk too much about the spiritual part of it today because that could be like a whole different share that if you invite me back at a different time, I could go into more of the spiritual journey and how that has been a huge element um, to my recovery and uh, how I feel about who I am today. I don't have to ask anymore why me like I had in the past, uh, except sometimes I ask God, you know, why have I not been killed yet? Uh, I've ridden my bicycle across this country multiple times. I've ridden kind of all over the world at this point, and I've had so many near misses, but I really do believe that there's a purpose for me to be here today because here I am. So instead of asking why me, I think I had to go through all that crap and insecurity and anxiety as a kid to be the person I am today. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, my friend whose mother jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, we do a lot of night kayaking together. And when we kayak back from dinner in the dark, in the peace, we always look at each other and say, I love my life. And now I'm planning for my retirement and um, I love my life. So I just want to close with, uh, as a kid, I wasn't able to go on a roller coaster because I was too short. And then my parents told me when our Six Flags opened, when I turned 16 and got a car, I could, I could take my girlfriend and go on my own. But when I was 16, my dad wouldn't let me get a car. So I've always had this uh, desire for roller coasters. And um, today, what I'm doing, all my trips revolve around roller, uh, roller coasters and bike riding. And in September, I rode my bike across Europe and I hit five different theme parks and rode many, many roller coasters. So even at my age, I'm enjoying life and uh, doing the best of it. And I really do owe the best of the best today to being in, in fellowship and what, what the fellowship has, has given me. Uh, that's my story. And thank you for letting me share.